Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of The Bizarre Archives, a podcast dedicated to the bizarre, weird, and mysterious events that happen throughout history. I'm your host, Josie Pei. I am extremely excited to get this opportunity to share my love of this subject with you guys. Thank you so much for joining me. This episode is going to be about the 1919 Great Boston Molasses Flood, which sounds very weird and I'm aware, but in reality, it was a very sticky and very dangerous situation. So let's get started. Let's go back in time to January 15th, 1919, between 1230 and 1240. So this was on Commercial Street on the north end of Boston, Massachusetts, USA. Men were taking a break from their work. There were some kids playing around. People were going about their normal lives when suddenly, for blocks around, people felt the earth shake and a rumble filled the air. This dark brown wave appeared and so wept through, leaving behind plywood where once stood wood houses. Telephone poles were ripped out of the ground, steel beams that were holding up an elevated train track buckled and bent nearly in half. Cars, horses, people, everything else got swept up in its path, and the destruction ended up costing over what would be $100 million today. But, honestly, the greater cost was the 21 people who were killed and the 150 that were injured. This was not a small instant in all reality. So, what caused it? How in the heck did this happen? Okay, for that, we have to go back to 1915. It starts with the United States Industrial Alcohol Company which, through a subsidiary called the Purity Distilling Company, built a storage tank in that section of Boston that was over 50 feet tall and 90 feet in diameter, and it was built for holding molasses. Okay, what is molasses? Let's start there. Well, molasses is what's left over when you press sugar cane and extract white sugar from it. It's this dark, rusty brown gooey substance that's really similar to syrup. It's thick, it's heavy, and it's dense. And most people connect it to what their grandma uses when they're make when she's making cookies. It's kind of where your thought normally goes is baking. At least that's where mine go. So what was this used for? It was not actually used for baking. What the company was using it for was to make alcohol. And that was through this very specific process where they would take molasses and add in something to make it ferment, most likely yeast. And in this fermentation process, two things would happen. It would start to produce carbon dioxide and ethanol. The carbon dioxide didn't really matter. It would bubble out and just kind of dissipate into the air. Didn't really have any sway in all of this, but the ethanol is what they were really after. And ethanol, in all basics, is alcohol. So, in this process, as they got this to ferment, ethanol was produced, they needed to separate the ethanol from all of this gunk that was left over, all the leftover fermentation and molasses and yeast. To do that, they would heat up this concoction 
to what would be 80 degrees Celsius or um, 176 degrees Fahrenheit. And that is the evaporating heat for ethanol. Everything else in the mixture wouldn't evaporate until it got much, much hotter. But the ethanol at that point would start to evaporate. And then it was pumped through a series of tubes that would cool it down and liquefy it again. And then they could purify it a couple more times just to make sure it was all clean. And they had their ethanol that they needed. Ethanol normally would be used for things like beer, rum, wine, just your normal alcoholic beverages. Nothing big there, but that's not what this particular company had been using it for. What they were using it for started actually back in July of 1914 with the beginning of World War I. Obviously, when war comes around, there's going to be a lot more need for explosives. And specifically, this was the case with World War I, as they began using explosives and chemical warfare a lot more, and we progressed towards what would be considered more of a modern type of warfare. And World War I didn't end until November of 1918, which was about two months before the accident happened. So the company created this alcohol to create explosives. It was used in making things like dynamite and smokeless powder, which is is, it's an explosive similar to gunpowder. It's just without the smoke. And in order to create just one pound of this smokeless powder, you needed one liter of ethanol. So as the war continued, more and more demand rose from the need for these explosives, and the company for alcohol and these explosives blew up. Yes, I know that's ironic. We're going to move on. (laughs) And so the company, in order to keep up with this demand that they had for alcohol and for explosives, built this tank in order to hold molasses so that they could hold more and they could use more. But in their rush to keep up with the industry, they didn't necessarily follow everything they needed to with building this tank. You have reports and witnesses who state that the supervisors and the inspectors that were in charge of this construction didn't necessarily have all of the expertise they needed to spot any issues that might arise, whether it be the steel being too thin or bolts not being held in enough. They just didn't have the expertise to make sure that this process and the end result was going to be safe. And they didn't, in fact, even test the tank, which you would do by pumping water into it to make sure it holds tight and there's no leakage. They didn't test it before the first shipment of molasses came in and was stored. So very quickly after the tank began being used, problems started to rise. It became very commonplace for people to hear the tank creak and groan under the weight of how much it was holding. And in fact, very quickly, molasses started seeping out of these seams and these crevices And it was just normal. 
Instead of taking care of the problem and making sure it was patched up, the company painted over this ginormous tank a dark brown rusty color so that anything that came seeping out would just supposedly blend in and they would be fine and nobody would notice. And that's how it went for years on end. Kids would come up and get cups full of molasses as a sweet treat that they could snack on. Families would come and fill buckets full for use in their kitchen and at home. And people moved on with their lives. And everybody thought it was fine, for a while at least. It wasn't in fact until the accident did happen that a professor came and studied the steel that had been used in the construction and found that it was half the width it should have been in order for that tank to hold all of that weight of the molasses. So if we fast forward to the day of the accident, the tank had currently been holding around 1.5 million gallons, which is still a lot, of molasses. And it had been stored there over the winter. And then another shipment came in that day from the Caribbean, which is where they got all this molasses from, of around 0.5 or 0.6 more million gallons, which brought the total to two or more million of gallons being stored in this compromised tank. So at this point, what should be happening if this was an adventure movie or a sci-fi movie is all of the red alarm and the alerts would be going off and blaring and that pressure gauge would be flipping back and forth and going to the red stating this is an issue, danger, warning, there's something happening here, this is not stable. But this was not a movie, so that's not what happened. People were just left unawares of what was coming. So the weight and the pressure built and built, and then all of a sudden, around that time, 12.30 or 12.40 in the afternoon, the bolts and the steel holding this together burst apart and shot outwards like ammo from a gun embedding themselves in nearby buildings and sheds and trees. And this molasses just flooded outwards in this ginormous wave, which we have to stop here and question for a minute. Isn't molasses slow? I'm pretty sure it is, right? That's all what you're questioning. That's what I questioned when I first read through this. And yes, molasses is very slow. There's a saying specifically for that stating you're as slow as molasses. So why did this molasses flood outwards in such a rush? Why didn't it just seep and crawl its way forward and people could move out of the way at their leisure to avoid the icky stickiness? Like people in a zombie movie who honestly don't need to be running away because the zombies are very slow. What, what made it so that wasn't the case? Because it should have been the case, right? Well... For a while, people honestly didn't know why it was so destructive or why the molasses rushed outwards so quickly. But there was a study done by a Dr. Nicole Sharp, who was curious about this as well. And so she studied the fluid dynamics of this substance. And what she found is it was most likely called by something, by something called a gravity current. 
So a gravity current is when you have two gases or two liquids or one of each, and one of these things is lighter than the other one. And so the lighter one naturally just flows above the heavier one and in the process pushes down on this heavier substance, forcing it outwards in a current or in a wave. This happens normally if your house is heated and it's really cold outside. You open your door and the heat comes rushing out the top to go outside and the cold comes in from the bottom. And this heated air on top pushes down on the colder air, which causes it to go faster, which is why you get a breeze around your ankles when you open up the door in the middle of the winter. And that was the case with the molasses. When it broke this tank, the air came rushing in, which then began pressing down on the molasses, which happened very quickly and in such a way that the molasses flew outwards in a wave. Estimates put the initial wave at probably going, at probably being 40 feet tall, which would make sense with the height of the tank. And most likely it would have gotten smaller as it progressed outwards, which it flew outwards for probably two blocks, except for in one area where it was mainly stopped by a natural hill formation. But it was a lot of ground that it covered, and people put their estimates at it being anywhere between 40 and 15 feet tall, which, again, most likely happened because of its momentum slowing down and it losing a lot of its liquid as it went. But this wave was also going anywhere between 23 and 30 miles per hour as it flew outwards. And keeping in mind that this is a very heavy substance that is going very, very quickly, it explains a lot of the damage that occurred. The houses that just collapsed underneath it, how many cars it picked up, all of the telephone poles, how it bent a metal beam and just caused complete havoc as it spread outwards. You also have to take into account that a normal average speed for a person to run would be mm, eight or more miles per hour. So people, as fast as they were going, could not get away from this wave, from this flood that was coming at them. And in all honesty, some people didn't even see it coming. Some people were inside their houses or their workplaces and didn't notice it until they looked out their windows and saw a wave coming in their direction. And then they had to move quick to get anywhere safe. But it was hard to get anywhere safe because this wave was destroying so much as it went along. A lot of the injuries and a lot of the deaths were caused by blunt force trauma and injuries caused by all of the debris that this wave was picking up as it went along. Because it was, in all honesty, picking up everything as it went. And if it didn't pick it up, it stuck it in its place which is the other factor that needs to be taken into account when you look at the death rates and the injury rates. It was in the middle of January when this happened. It's cold outside. And so as this wave goes along, as it decreases in size, as it loses bits and uh, behind it, 
this cold air starts to solidify it more and more. This isn't water. This is sticky. This is heavy. And as it cools down, it it's similar to a bug getting stuck in amber. People were stuck in this molasses like flies in a sticky trap. It had hardened to a point where they could not get themselves out. So quite a few of the deaths were caused because people couldn't get their heads above the substance before it hardened and they couldn't breathe. They essentially drowned in molasses because they were stuck, which is very, very sad to think about, especially when taken into account that this was in a neighborhood. This was families. This was kids being stuck in all of this immense amount of sticky substance as it went. It is a very sad situation in all honesty. And as this went along and covered everything, honestly, there was very few ways for you to be able to unstick yourself. So when rescue crews came through and people who were trying to help, they, one, had to avoid this sticky substance themselves and try not to fall into it, and two, they had to try and find a way to clean it off of the debris, which was very, very difficult, combined with the cold and the substance itself. They ended up having to pressurize and push in water from the sea to try and spray and hose down all of the gunk that was left behind to get to whoever was stuck in it and the bodies that were left into it in it it took overall thousands and thousands of work hours just to clear out all of the molasses and to clean up the debris and it took four months to finally find the last body of the last victim in this whole mess. It was, in all honesty, a disaster. And like I stated at the beginning of this episode, it caused 21 deaths and 150 people to be injured. It was a bad situation in a lot of different ways. And so, naturally, this resulted in a lawsuit against the company, which makes complete sense. At the time, they didn't have all of the facts put together of the lack of, of focus put in on making sure this tank was safe and constructed safely and making sure the upkeep was going well. A lot of that wasn't known at the time, but as they brought all this information together, it became very clear that, in all honesty, it was most likely the company at fault. The company, in turn, for their defense, claimed that a week or two prior, there had been a man or a group who claimed they were going to try to blow up this tank. They were an anarchist group. They wanted to cause craziness. They wanted to cause destruction, and so they threatened to blow up, to blow it up. But it wasn't that that caused this. As far as anybody can tell, there was no dynamite involved. There was no explosives involved that caused the the tank to fall apart. It was, in all honesty, just the fact that the tank wasn't very well built and had too much pressure building up from the inside from the amount of molasses. 
So after a couple of years, it took from the time the lawsuit was filed, which would have been in 1919, to 1925 for the courts to rule in the favor of the people and against this company. And they, the company in turn had to pay repercussions, which would have, which was around $1 million at the time and translates to around $14 million today just for all of the lives lost and all of the destruction. Another factor that came in after all of this happened is the Boston as a state stepped in and put in more strict regulations on construction and on codes for buildings and tanks just to make sure something like this would never happen again because it was very sad. It was a very sad circumstance and it didn't need to happen if things had been taken care of. So that is the Great Boston Molasses Flood of 1919. I probably didn't fill in all of the details. There's a lot of information out there. I found plenty of articles talking about this. There's some really good ones that give personal accounts that people have of this flood coming through. People talk about how there was a group of sailors who were some of the first to come in and start helping people and getting people out of the molasses. It talks about people looking out their windows and seeing this flood coming towards them about a man who was in his house when it happened and the molasses destroyed his house but he was able to survive by climbing on top of a wood bed that somehow managed to float which lucky for him there are plenty of witnesses there's plenty of different accounts of how this happened and i would definitely encourage you to go and look up some of them yourself because it's very interesting. And I would also look up some of the science behind how this happened, because I didn't cover everything, and I very much summarized a lot of it. But if you go onto YouTube, one of the things that I really liked was a YouTube video called The Great Molasses Flood of 1919, done by a YouTube channel called Reactions which is run by a Samantha Jones who has a PhD. And she goes through and explains the science behind it and how it all worked. And she does an excellent job of it. I highly recommend her videos, not just for that, but for a lot of other things that she goes into behind the sci with science behind things. There are, again, plenty of articles. Highly suggest. I'm not going to be able to cover everything that I want to in the bit of time I have in this podcast. And so if you want to learn more, highly suggest go and research for yourself. But thank you so much for joining me. Again, thank you so much for joining me. If you enjoyed this episode, if you have any questions, comments, or even a bizarre event in history that you know of and want me to research, please leave a like and a comment below. I would really appreciate it. I'll see you next time on Bizarre Archives.